electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks. And stocks have turned negative today as the Dow gives up its earlier 300-point gain. Right now, we're down almost 200 points. So that's quite a swing. We're still above 22,000 for the blue chips. But you can see nearly a 1% drop for the S&P. Now, that could be significant. We've only had three of them so far this month. These declines are a fitting move as we do look to close out a month and a quarter to forget. In March, the Dow has dropped 11%, the S&P 10%, and the NASDAQ 8%. Uh, It's the worst month for both the Dow and the S&P since the financial crisis, and a month marked by plenty of volatility, too. The Dow is traded in nearly a 9,000-point range, and right now nearly half of the S&P 500 is down more than 10% just this month. For the quarter, the news isn't much better, as you guys know. The Dow is down more than 20% for its worst ever first quarter. The S&P is down more than 18%. That's its second worst first quarter. Got that? The Nasdaq is, relatively speaking, the best of the three. It's down 12%. So just some pretty stunning declines for all of the major averages over the past couple of months. But let's zero in a little bit on today's action. Uh, Rebalancing, what are the other forces at play here? Bob Bassani joins us with that. Bob? Yeah, and we may have had all the effects of that rebalancing yesterday. And of course, rebalancing occurs when the pension funds have to rebalance whatever weighting they are, 60-40 or so. And this quarter, of course, dramatic drop in stocks, rise generally in treasuries. So you you buy stocks and sell treasuries. That may have happened yesterday. As you can see, we're essentially sitting at the lows for the day. The good news is volume's a lot lighter the last two days. The VIX has been dropping the last couple of days. So some of the extremes that we see midday are... Uh, moderating a little bit. That's the good news. Bad news is some of the sectors still not acting very well. Let's just take a look at some of the sectors. Transports are up because the airlines have generally been holding up very well this morning. Energy, rare up day, but don't kid yourself. It's been catastrophic, down 50 percent for the for the quarter. Healthcare has been performing a little better, uh, and so has uh, consumer staples. But banks down 40 percent as a group. Uh, and still, even today, uh, overall underperforming. For the quarter to date, down 19% for the S&P 500. This is the uh, second largest uh, quarterly drop in the S&P 500, largest in the Dow that we've seen. Treasuries outperforming. Look at those treasuries. Loan dated up 20% more. Uh, and of course, we've seen some of the other ones. A corporate investment grade, uh, basically flat, high yield down 11%, which answers that question, you know, Kelly, in times of great stress, And in times of potential recession, high yield funds, bond funds tend to act like stock funds. They come down in some cases almost as much, not quite as much as we've seen that. And that happened in 2008 as well. Kelly, back to you. Bob, do you hear people talking about how, you know, hey, maybe that was the bottom, you know, last week and and trying to jump in and chase these gains? You You don't really get that feel yet. No. And so there's two camps. The one one camp is out there is the we drift a little lower in the middle of April, but it's not much. And then we rebound as we hit a peak in coronavirus cases. And some people are now hopeful that's going to happen towards the end of April. Then there's the other crowd, the L crowd that says, no, wait a minute. Uh, Even if we peak in the next month or so in terms of coronavirus cases, the knock on effects are much greater than we've been able to anticipate so far. And they're the crowd that think we could retest the lows that we saw a week ago. 
And that's uh, really the lines of the debate right now, those two crowds. All right, Bob, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go from okay. stocks to bonds. We've had some movement in the short end of the curve, and it's to the downside. The two-year yield hitting the lowest level since 2013 today. Let's head to Rick Santelli for a look at why. What's going on, Rick? Yes, well, I'll tell you what, you're right. Two-year note yields actually are the only yield that isn't at a historic spot. I'll tell you what I mean. So here we are at 20 basis points on a two-year note, getting very close to all time, but still hovering back to around 2013. But if you look at threes, fives, sevens, right now you look at 24 basis points on a three, you look at what's going on here at 33 basis points, and finally you look at a seven at 51. What's unique about this is all of these are at the lowest yields ever. Okay, now if we look at a month-to-date of 10s, as you see on your screen, right now 54 basis points is the low. And as we hover basically 11 basis points above that, many believe you need to get back above the most recent high, which is 119, to negate that bottom, whichever happens first. Look at a month-to-date of 30s. It's ironic, but their low yield close ever from the uh, 9th of March was just a whisker under 1%. It's high since then, 179. So either we get back under 1% or above 179. Those are the extremes that many traders are looking at. But I've never seen something so aggressive uh, with regard to all-time lows pretty much throughout most of the curve. Kelly, back to you. Rick, in, in a, is there a simple cause for this? I mean, is it just we're going to talk in a moment about these pretty awful GDP forecasts. Is it just growth? Is there you know, more to the story, do you think? Why, why are they all, especially in the two-year, sinking so much? Well, you know, awful GDP forecast. Would you expect anything else when you turn the circuit breaker of all businesses off? I think it's a lot of various issues, not the least of which is, is that we're seeing a lot of buying by central banks to keep the gears greased. We're seeing avoidance of these low yields because where are you going to get any more profits from here? You're going to go negative? And if we do, do you really want to Put all your investment in the notion that there has to be a greater fool behind you to buy something that goes more negative so you get a profit? No, I think investment-grade issuance may be the answer of the bridge at this point. That's why it's going through the roof. A lot less volatility than Scott's, than stocks, and a lot juicier yields than the Treasury curve. All right, Rick, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli in Chicago today. Now to the coronavirus itself. New data is showing that social distancing may be working when it comes to stopping the spread of this virus. Meg Terrell is here at a safe distance uh, with those details. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, the numbers, of course, across the United States are still rising, but we are seeing glimmers of progress. That was the word that Dr. Anthony Fauci used this morning when talking to CNN. And those glimmers are in a few different places we'll show you. The first is in Seattle. According to two different reports cited by their public health department, uh, a study of mobility using anonymized uh, mobility data, essentially from people's Facebook apps, showed that mobility declined in March. And a separate uh, study showed that transmission of the virus was also reduced. In San Francisco, some hospitals are reporting cases leveling off. In Kaiser, and UCSF. Here in New York, Governor Cuomo uh, talking yesterday about ICU admissions rate here slowing from doubling every two days to yesterday doubling every six days. We just saw updated numbers. The case numbers are still bad, uh, but that trend appears to be continuing. Kinsa uh, is a company that uses digital thermometers to track fever data across the country. They've got a million of these thermometers um, out across the country, and they've got a map here showing the decline over seven days uh, in that fever data across the country. Public health experts say you can use this as kind of an indicator of where you might 
might see COVID-19 cases going. So that decline, the darker the blue, the bigger the decline, that's a potentially good sign. Um, so a lot of these things together are spelling good news. Uh, however, we are still seeing case numbers rise pretty quickly. Uh, New York's rising again today. Uh, Gottlieb, Scott Gottlieb also pointing to Texas and Florida as states really to watch their case numbers starting to go up very fast and may even, of course, be undercounted uh, based on our testing situation, Kelly. Aren't we talking to Kinsa, Meg? I mean, that's fascinating the way they're using these thermometers. Yep, they are coming up uh, on Power Lunch at 220. Fabulous. All right, everybody, stay tuned. Uh, Meg, we appreciate it with that comprehensive update. That is Meg Terrell. Let's get back to the economy now. Goldman Sachs slashing its second quarter GDP forecast to a decline of 34 percent now. That's 10 points worse than its last estimate. Elsewhere, Morgan Stanley forecasting a 30 percent drop. J.P. Morgan recently lowering its estimates from minus 14 to minus 25. Uh, so what's changed in particular uh, since those previous forecasts? Joining me on the CNBC Newsline now is Mike Faroli. He's the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Mike, it's good to have you back. Why, why do things look so much worse lately? What's the biggest uh, delta, so to speak? Well, one thing we've learned is just the extent of the number of stay-at-home uh, orders around the country, which is extending where we're seeing weakness from. You know, before we had thought it was consumer spending on things like airlines and so forth, and now it's just the overall economy is shutting down, even even sectors that aren't related directly related to the uh, uh, to the virus. So that's what we've learned. I mean, we also, of course, saw that unemployment claims number last Thursday, which was uh, continues to be shocking if you look at it. We expect something similar again, uh, unfortunately, this Thursday. Right. And now we have anecdotal data about, you know, jobless claims offices just being totally inundated. So you were saying that the biggest change is that these stay-at-home orders are effectively shutting down the economy, not just consumer spending, mm-hmm. but as our, our Phil Lebeau reported, you know, there's no major automaker that has, you know, its production lines open right now and, and so forth. When this uh, lifts, and, and again, maybe it's going to be a rolling lift, but mm-hmm. does that activity spring right back? How are you guys anticipating this recovery will look like? Activity should come back, uh, should spring back, yes. I think in the third quarter, if everything goes according to plan, we could see double-digit growth rates. But keep in mind, that's a growth rate. I think it's important to think about levels here. So if you, if you want to think about the unemployment rate, I think we and, and you know everyone really expect a big spike uh, in April and May. Uh, and that should start coming down in the second half. But we still think by the end of the year, the unemployment rate will, will be substantially higher than where it is now. And I do think even if we have activity springing back, there's going to be some lasting damage in terms of weaker balance sheets of both businesses and households, uh, destroyed uh, job matches. And so that will take time uh, time to repair. Right. And we know this Friday we get a big number. It's going to be the March uh, unemployment report. But plenty of people have pointed out the survey period, the week that includes the 12th day of the month, was before a lot yep. of the stay-at-home orders hit. So maybe the report, quote-unquote, won't look that bad. In fact, people are struggling to find a piece of data that really well sums up what's happening in the economy right now. What kind of alternative or traditional data points are you most focused on right now? So I already mentioned the jobless claims, and I think for a number of weeks that will continue to be uh, the marquee report on the state of the economy. You know, we've also been looking at some other high-frequency big data indicators, but most of those have become, uh, they were interesting at first, so watching things like NBA attendance and and restaurant uh, reservations. But when those all go to zero, it's kind of mm. not really all that informative anymore. Uh, so we're really still focused mostly on jobless claims, at least for the next few weeks. Wow. I mean, that, that tells you a lot in and of itself that there's you know, no alternative data, no big data, so to speak, uh, to really aggregate anymore. Um, so I guess the final question becomes you know, policy response. The president has already been talking about maybe an infrastructure uh, package 
could be phase four. We've already passed the first three phases of stimulus. Mm-hmm. The Fed has done quite a lot, but they've actually had to slow some of the mortgage purchases to not mess up that market too much. Uh, what more is, is needed, do you think? What more is expected? So I think it is likely that more is needed, particularly uh, the aid to states and localities may be insufficient. Um, I think it is actually sensible to start thinking about infrastructure, even though the shock uh, could be short-lived in, in you know, a number of months. Uh, the weakness in, in overall economic uh, activity could persist. So, you know, putting in place something now that provides support to the economy in a year or so is time, which is what an infrastructure bill would uh, would do, is, is actually somewhat sensible when you think about, for example, how long it took to re- return to full employment after the um, uh, the last recession. So I think uh, having some added ex- uh, aggregate demand in the pipeline for, uh, for 2021 is actually uh, starting to look like a good idea. Finally, Mike, how long before you think we get back to what the previous GDP growth trend was? So if the uh, experience of the last uh, recession is any indication, uh, it could be never, right? So I don't think anyone would expect us to return to potential growth estimates that prevailed in 2006 or seven. So I do think there's going to be some lasting um, uh, um, you know, loss of output, uh, permanent loss of output here. That said, I do think uh, with the right policies, we can get back to full employment by, uh, by the end of next year. By the end of next year for full employment. All right. Never one to mince words. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Mike Froley is the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Well, as he said, America is sheltering in place. And to pass the time, we're binge watching like never before. And we had some new data out just moments ago, which helps illustrate this massive jump the streaming companies are seeing. Julia Borson is here with those numbers. Julia. Kelly, that's right. Streaming viewership growth is accelerating during the coronavirus crisis. Nielsen just reporting that Americans' streaming minutes grew 22% the week of March 16th from the prior week to a total of 156 billion minutes. That's more than double the 9.6% growth from the first week to the second week of March. And Netflix consistently dominates with about 30% of streaming minutes. It's followed by YouTube with 20%, Hulu with 10%, and then Amazon with 9%. And we have seen this play out in Netflix's shares. It's a rare stock in the green this year, up 17%. Now, about a third of all that streaming goes to other apps. Now, that includes Disney Plus and ad-supported Tubi and Pluto, along with the Hallmark Movies channel. But all of those have less than 9% each of streaming share, according to Nielsen. Now, it is notable that Disney Plus is still just a fraction of the size of Netflix when it comes to those streaming minutes. But after it launched Frozen 2 earlier than anticipated, the category, that other category that is in did grow by three percentage points from one week to the next. And Kelly, based on all these numbers, it really seems like the increasing trend in streaming viewership is only going to continue. Back yeah. over to you. And again, could be one of the, we, we knew it was here already, but really lasting things to come of this. Julia, thanks. We appreciate it. Julia Borston. Still to come, investors are looking to put the dreadful first quarter behind them. And with all the major averages up more than 6% in just the past week, we'll ask if we've really hit a bottom. Plus, frustrations and wait times rising as unemployment offices are swamped with new applicants. The stunning numbers of just how grim things are straight ahead. And the airlines moving higher today, despite staggering new stats on just how many people are not flying. Our breaking news coverage continues in What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Dow's given up its 300-point gain earlier. We're down 210 right now, and the S&P is now down uh, more than 1%. It was trying to be one of only four times this month that it has moved less than that amount, uh, 1% up or 1% down. Uh, but is this market turmoil in the rearview mirror or not? Joining me now, Craig Columbus, the CEO of Columbus Macro, and Chris Zaccarelli is Chief Investment Officer of the Independent Advisor Alliance. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Craig, you know, what do you think? I, I know it's tough to you know, opine on, on all of this, but... Uh, when people come to you and ask, you know, look, are we going to, is this a temporary clearing? Are we about to, you know, take another nasty leg lower? Do you have any kind of gut feel for that? Well, I think there are some positives. The policy response, the size and speed were both impressive. The fact that we've got the gears of the market working on dollar funding and on repo. But I will say you've got to be a little bit patient. Think about this crisis, pandemic, different from SARS, different from H1N1, and different from Spanish flu, all in the sense that those all happen at the end of bear markets. We were making new all-time highs in February. So the difference is those all had excess wrung out of those markets. Now here, we're going to have a slowdown. You're going to have to delever. And deleveraging is a process that takes time. So in other words, you're saying this uh, market, this economy was ripe uh, for deleveraging. We, it's not like we've already gone through it. This is going to sort of force us to go through it. So what does that look like? How, how much longer does that play out? Correct. So that's uh, after 11 years of a bull market and lots of debt, Financial conditions are tightening, so that is going to be probably a multi-year process where you're going to be more range-bound. But I think, obviously, getting some positive things on the virus will help. Getting an additional stimulus, which is probably going to come for sure to help stay, uh, the local and county governments, that's going to be a positive. But the deleveraging just takes time. Okay. And I know, Chris, that you're, there are specific things you're avoiding as you kind of put capital into the market right now. You said you're avoiding the value traps in places like energy, and you're avoiding index funds. Why? Well, you know, what we've seen so far is this broad-based sell-off, and you're heading into a recession. And in that case, you want to make sure you're very careful about which companies you own. So for those companies that can make it through a recession, quality companies, good balance sheets, assets and short-term cash that they can use to make all of their payments through the recession, that's the most important thing. I don't believe this is a time that you want to own all the stocks in the index. It makes more sense to be selective and, and make sure that you're looking for those kinds of companies that are going to make it through this period if it does turn out to be a protract, protracted recession. Is there a way people can do that on their own? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I realize I'm sort of asking you to talk against your book a little bit here, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think a lot of people just feel more comfortable doing an index fund. It's low cost, you know, they say, I, I don't know which companies to pick. Sure. And I, and I think that makes sense. And you're exactly right. You know, I'm talking about professional investors, people who are using financial advisors, they have some help. If you're, if you're a do-it-yourselfer at home, then, you know, probably an index fund would make more sense. I'm just saying if you have the option of working with someone who has a little bit more knowledge, that may be a better way to go, because this may be one of those times where having an index and owning all companies, both those well-positioned to make it through the crisis and those that are not so well-positioned, isn't as ideal. Interesting. And uh, that kind of brings up energy in particular, uh, which you refer to as a value trap. Would you add things there? I, I guess I'm asking you, would energy and financials go in the same category right now as things like airlines and cruise ships? Well, to be clear, we were saying we're trying to avoid those those value traps that we're finding within the energy sector, industrial sector, and material sector. We don't believe that all energy companies are, are, are value traps. We just think that sector is ripe with those companies which are. 
So in general, yes, you again, you're looking for those well-capitalized companies, the ones that are going to make it through this crisis. And in every sector, you can find those companies which are, are more are better positioned. We would just say within those sectors specifically, you've got to be even more careful than you would in other sectors. As far as financial services are concerned, we're actually in much better shape as a banking system right now than obviously anything we were in during the financial crisis. And that's the good news. Despite the fact that this is going to be a huge stress test, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on the banks and the rest of the economy. We believe that financials, for the most part, especially those large capitalized banks, are actually relatively safe. We yeah. don't think there are value traps in the financial sector like there are in potentially the energy sector. Okay, and Craig, I see you here You're also reducing exposure to energy industrials, adding to healthcare staples and technology. Uh, thank you for allowing me to paraphrase. And it's good to see you both today. I appreciate it very much. Chris Zaccarelli, uh, Craig Columbus as well. We appreciate it. Helping retailers get products to your door, the CEO of Commerce Hub is going to tell us about the health of the product pipeline and the delays we should expect after this short break. And should Americans get used to walking, commuting, and going to sporting events in masks? Jane Wells is tackling that story for us. Jane? Yeah, Kelly, we're getting conflicting information. We've been told not to wear these or buy these. There's a shortage. This is a used one, by the way. But increasingly, some doctors say you should maybe go outside wearing anything, even if it's this. Unmasking the truth about masks. When we come back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest on the coronavirus case count right now. Sue Herrera joins us with that and all the headlines at this hour. Sue? Indeed, I do, Kelly. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. The coronavirus pandemic in Canada is starting to accelerate. The death toll there jumped by 35 percent since yesterday to 89 deaths. Total cases are up 15 percent to just over 7,700. The National Guard is helping transport food in Arizona. Supplies stored in a warehouse near Phoenix will be used to restock grocery stores throughout that state. Hospitals in Chicago are preparing for an influx of coronavirus patients. Uh, Rush University Medical Center has actually converted its main lobby into a low-grade emergency room where non-COVID-19 patients can be kept away from those with the virus. The head of the hospital's emergency medical team says the outbreak is frightening for everyone. And a temporary hospital with 200 intensive care beds has been constructed at the Milan Fairgrounds as part of plans to relieve pressure on northern Italy's overwhelmed hospitals. It was built in 10 days by about 500 workers. 
amazing sites from around the world. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus coverage by heading to CNBC.com. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much, Sue Herrera. Well, when the coronavirus epidemic began, doctors said that healthy people shouldn't wear masks. But now some are questioning that advice and asking if everyone should indeed be wearing some kind of mask. Jane Wells does join us with more on this story. Hi, Jane. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, Dr. Anthony Fauci says the White House Coronavirus Task Force is going to discuss the mask situation today. Because way back at the end of January, here in California, people started wearing masks, including me. Here's a photo of an N95 mask I got way back during fire season. I wore it on a flight to Chicago back on February 2nd. And then, like you said, uh, they started saying, oh, healthy people don't need to wear masks. So I gave away my N95 mask to a nurse friend. I kept this one just in case. But now the CDC is going to reconsider the possibility that other doctors are mentioning of everybody wearing masks outside once there are enough of them. Because you may think you're healthy and you go to the grocery store, but you're actually infected and you don't know it. So, of course, everybody is starting to make their own masks, or a lot of Americans are, out of cloth or some other material. The upside is that this doesn't further strain the current short supplies of N95 masks for healthcare workers. And there are all kinds of mask hacks, which uh, our own Eunice Yoon showed me earlier this month on how to keep the bands out of your hair. What I do is I cut that. Right down the middle, and then I create it like this, so you can put it on like this. Oh, man. She really uh, is the expert at this. Now, the Surgeon General warned this morning that people shouldn't, if you wear something, anything like this, like this, don't get close to people. Keep washing your hands. Those are the most important things, Kelly, that even if you put on something like this to go to the store, that you don't have a false sense of security. You know, Scott Gottlieb, Jane, talked about this a couple weeks ago, and he said there's a difference. And even look at China's president, Xi Jinping. He wears a simple, quote-unquote, procedure mask when he's out in public. He's not wearing the N95 masks. You send those to the healthcare workers. You keep the simpler one uh, for people to wear. And like you said, where, as we look through the materials, you can basically use a dishcloth, a piece of cotton clothing. Those are even better than, in many cases than a scarf. So I don't know why people shouldn't start doing that uh, for the time being in public, well, right? Because we weren't, we weren't told that we needed to. Yeah. I mean, we thought everybody's, if you're healthy, you don't need a mask. And so I've been going to the grocery store once a week. And this is the first week where I saw a couple people in the store finally wearing masks. And I'm going to do it from now on. It just this, this bandana, even though I look, you know, like a like I want to stick you up or something. But uh, it'll it'll do the trick. People will understand. Maybe you'll get your groceries for free, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jane, thanks very much. That's our Jane Wells. Coming up here, uh, if you're going to the store, that gallon of gasoline is below $2 nationally for the first time in four years. Maybe good news for drivers, but there aren't a lot of them lately. We'll get into that. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back. About half past. Let's get a check on the markets right now. We're slightly off session lows, but the Dow has swung from a 300 point gain to a 250 point decline right now. That's a 1 percent drop. More than that for the S&P. In terms of the sectors, energy is actually the outperformer today. Uh, Last check, it was slightly in the green. Yep, there it is up just under 1 percent. Real estate and utilities, interestingly enough, worst performers, real estate's down 5%, even though bond yields are at record lows, like Rick Santelli has been talking about. Uh, within the Dow, Caterpillar is your leader today, while Procter & Gamble, Home Depot, and Intel are your biggest laggards. So a little bit there of selling 
the leadership. Uh, Home Depot has been an outperformer. It's down 3.5%. Same for P&G, which is down more than 4% today. How about in the retail space? Obviously, one of the worst sectors of the year. RH, Macy's, Kohl's, and Dollar Tree are continuing those declines. RH had some earnings this morning. Uh, That stock is down nearly 12%. And last week, jobless claims surged to a grim record. 3.2 million of them were filed as coronavirus has spurred layoffs in industries like retail, but also across the board. And we just heard in Governor Cuomo's briefing that the New York State Unemployment Office got more than a million calls yesterday and nearly 8 million last week. They usually average a couple of thousands. So now all of those people are causing big delays in filing for these benefits, huge delays for some. Rahel Solomon has that story for us. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So in neighboring New Jersey, for Elman Restaurant and Bar, business essentially went from booming to zero. This is in Long Beach Island when New Jersey businesses were forced to close unless they were essential businesses on March 16th. Their expenses are too high, so they can't do takeout, they can't do delivery. So they had to lay off all 75 employees, including the general manager. Her name is Robin Batilo. She tells us that she has been constantly calling the unemployment office and not just for herself. Take a listen. I've tried to get in touch for multiple of the workers because, like I said, I've been trying to help them as well. Um, And every day that you call, it says due to the high call volume, um, you will have to call back tomorrow. And that's what we got all last week. And take a listen to this. Apparently, the system was so overwhelmed at some point that appointments were being generated for the year 2040, 20 years from now. Now, a spokeswoman for New Jersey's Labor Department tells us that was a system error. She tells us that has been corrected. And she also says in a statement that these are unprecedented times for our 40-year-old systems, but our information technology team has added capacity, allowing us to accept thousands of claims per hour. We are monitoring our systems around the clock, and we have staff working overtime to try to serve as many customers as quickly as possible. And Kelly, the layoffs likely to continue. Just yesterday, Challenger pointing out in a note that 49% of companies report that they're very or somewhat likely to conduct layoffs in the next three months. I, I mean, can you imagine seeing 2040 for an appointment? It's just so, so frustrating it's for absurd. people. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure it's hard for them to keep these systems going when they themselves are probably have staffing issues from coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. So the one thing that I've heard from a lot of these state offices is that they understand the frustration. Governor Cuomo was asked about it today in the state of New York, and he said, listen, the system is not working as it's supposed to. I think a lot of people realize that, even those who are working. Um, But, you know, for Robin herself in particular, she tells me that fortunately she and her husband have a pretty decent savings account, but it's really her employees that she's very concerned about. Absolutely. All right, Rahel, thanks so much. Uh, Rahel Solomon. Well, despite those mounting job losses, there is one industry looking to hire. It's delivery and shipping. And my next guest works with thousands of suppliers that deliver products to consumers across the country. For more on what shoppers can expect and how supply chains are adapting, I'm joined by Frank Poor. He is the CEO of Commerce Hub. Frank, welcome. And first of all, we need some uh, better news after that report. So are you guys hiring? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we've been continuing to grow. Obviously, there's a surge in growth in e-commerce as stores are closing. So we continue to uh, do well online. You know, that said, there are certain categories of products that are doing well, and there's other categories of products that aren't doing as well. Uh, We're in the business of integrating large retailers online and large marketplaces with a network of about 12,000 distributors and brands that ship products directly to the consumer. Right. So we've got a digital supply chain that's uh, enabling, you know, significant uh, flow and uh, 
you know, delivery at this time. We spoke with the CEO of L.L. Bean yesterday who said he was also seeing a big mix shift in his e-commerce. People are ordering a lot of slippers in L.L. Bean's case. What are you seeing, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, what people are not ordering right now? And the retail, how is that effect? How is that mix shift affecting the retailers themselves? Well, certainly apparel has been hit pretty hard. Uh, no one's getting uh, a shirt for this Friday's party. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the categories that are doing well are the stay-at-home kind of products. So everything from entertainment-oriented types of things, games and puzzles, to uh, home goods, to do-it-yourself type projects. There's a lot of that going on right now. Absolutely. So in terms of the delays and, and kind of how the system is functioning, uh, you know, I mentioned, as I'm sure our viewers can see, I, I need contact lenses, um, but I, I don't know... I, whether I should expect anything like that. Usually they take 48 hours or something like that to arrive. Um, what kinds of delays should we expect for, for products uh, in terms of the system right now? Well, I mean, you know, Amazon is moving a lot of uh, non-essential products out of Prime, and so you're starting to see slowdowns across the chain, which is opening up opportunities for other retailers. Um, right now, if you've got items available for sale and you can leverage your stores, um, I know personally, I've, I've experienced for the first time uh, during this crisis a number of buy online and curbside pickup. I think a lot of these trends are going to persist. Uh, these conveniences today will become expectations tomorrow. But there's a, there's a big shift towards those that were, you know, uh, e-commerce and digital first and that leverage their short stores and shipping points. Right. Um, I think right now they have, they have an advantage over those who don't have stores. So interestingly, you suggest Amazon might be losing some share, too. And I'll name the name like a Target where you can buy online, maybe pick up curbside. Is that right? Absolutely. I think there's a desire right now to get things. There's some things that you want more immediately. Uh, people are turning to uh, buy online and pick up in the store. Um, it used to be you'd walk into the store. Now these same stores are offering curbside pickup and other conveniences to be more contactless. And, and that's what people are looking for right now. And so what do you are doing well. Sure. The final question, do you think this, these trends will persist? Um, and if so, I wonder, does Amazon need, and it has obviously been increasing its physical presence over the years. It has Whole Foods, it has the lockers, and it has deals with Kohl's and so forth. But is this revealing a, a vulnerability for them? Well, they certainly have, you know, Amazon Pantry and Prime Now, and they, they can deliver, uh, you know, they have a network where they control all of the moving parts from distribution to delivery, uh, where other retailers have to rely on other sources. I sort of feel right now having a network of partners, both uh, suppliers, carriers, delivery agents, um, is a real diversification of risk, right? Um, if it's your own facilities and they go down, um, you've got a lot more uh, problem than if you're uh, relying on a network of partners that can keep the supply chain rolling. So interesting uh, the way this pandemic is changing our, our preconceptions. Uh, Frank, thanks so much. It's good to see you. Thank you. Frank Poor is the CEO of Commerce Hub. Up next, a bullish call on cheap burgers and cheap stuff for your home. Plus, the quarter can't end soon enough for America's malls and specialty retailers. Check out the ETF that tracks that sector. It's down 34% since the start of the year. Our breaking news coverage will be back after this short break. Welcome back with the markets down overall this afternoon. Let's get to some of our calls of the day. Wedbush is upgrading shares of Wendy's today to outperform, believing the company is relatively insulated from near-term headwinds and well-positioned for the 
post-COVID world that they say could accelerate top and bottom line growth. Analysts are saying they may have underestimated Wendy's breakfast launch. Uh, they did trim their price target by a dollar to 22, and Wendy's is right now trading at $15, up fractionally today. Uh, Berenberg with an upgrade of Box to a buy with a $17 price target. Uh, they're saying Box could see increased demand stemming from workforces at home and increasing their reliance on cloud technologies. Box has underperformed its peers for the last couple of years because of decelerated revenue growth. Uh, but the analyst says Box's recent focus on profitability has actually led to a large net cash position that could be an advantage now. A box fractionally lower, just below $14 a share. And finally, Dollar General. This one seems to always come up late- lately. It was upgraded to overweight at Wells Fargo with a $175 price target. Analysts there say the retailer has numerous underappreciated tailwinds that are gaining steam, and the government stimulus is a key comp driver, sales driver for them. Dollar General should uh, benefit in the second quarter, they say, and they're calling it the best stock in the consumer arsenal if there is a sustained recession. Uh, DG shares just over $150 with a nearly 5% gain today. And stocks are on pace for their worst month since the financial crisis, with the Dow bracing for its worst ever first quarter slide. Where do we go from here? Joining me on the news line right now is Jim Yorio. He's managing director at TJM Institutional Services. And Jim, uh, it's nice to hear from you. And what are you watching here to see if the worst indeed is behind us after this awful Q1? Well, I think if you look at the last four trading days, each one of those days, the market has kind of topped out kind of close to the 2630 level, which I think has become a huge deal. Now, if you think you want to think of it in a fundamental standpoint, it's, it's this, is that the market wanted QE. They got it in unlimited QE last week. The market wanted a stimulus package. They got it. Now, the third shoe to drop has to be some real uh, progress made in the virus and a real kind of believable time frame for coming back to work. And we know that's long and coming. So my concern now is that we're going to get a little disappointed in the next couple of weeks. I've always thought from the beginning that mid-April was going to be the point that that is kind of the pivot. And as we get to June, a couple things are going to happen, and I think it's going to be a big deal, is that the, the worries are going to subside a bit, but all this central bank money that's been tossed in from around the world, not just us, it could end up in U.S. stocks. But for the time being, I think the, the greater probability is that we fail here within the next couple of days and trade back to 2400 Now, if we don't, mm-hmm. if two days go by and the, a bunch of people are putting shorts on, everyone, every trader I talk to is like, well, these are tough levels. We've got to short against it. If it can't break in the next two days, then we go shooting through that level. But I think that's a secondary possibility. Jim, what about, I mean, the, the market often seems to be looking, you know, three to six months ahead normally. And, and I hear a lot of people conversationally talking about the fall saying what happens if coronavirus comes back? What happens if there's not a normal, you know, playing schedule for football games and all the, you know, back to school and all of these things that kind of indicate life is indeed back to normal? What if that's not the case? Well, okay, that's an ominous thought. Every time we've, we've never seen something exactly like this, but every time we've seen something that even smacks of being close to this, I think market's job and people's job and emotions are, to overreact. My hope is that it overreacts, and my money is going to say that that's an overreaction as well, too. Um, I, I do believe that you know, in, in American ingenuity and technology, and I think that if you give us three months to prepare for this, meaning the summer months, mm-hmm. if it comes back in the fall, we're going to be a lot more ready for it. So I'm personally not going to worry about that with my trades. I think that that's not going to happen. But you know, when you say it out loud, we've seen some weird things, obviously. Right, right. no, and people will, it'll, it'll come back to haunt you. 
uh, with you know, if you say the wrong thing. I wanted to ask you quickly about crude. I think you have an interesting insight here. We noted yesterday that it traded below $20 a barrel. You described that as a rejection of the sub $20 level that you think means it could be heading back up towards 25, right? Well, I do. The, the, the bearish case on crude is evident and it's everywhere and it's been echoed from the highest mountain. We all get it. There's a bear case in crude. It traded below $20 a couple times and rejected quickly. I wanted to see a little bit bigger rejection when we talked yesterday. It looked like that was going to happen. But I still think $20 is a, is a big deal. And if it starts rally, and just if you have to fill in a fundamental case for what's going to make it rally again, let's say that there's rumblings that the price war between Russia and Saudi calls a timeout. And that could you know, possibly happen if we you know, release some sanctions on Russia. Maybe mm. they, they play ball a little bit more. And also if that thing happens and we think they're coming back to the table, there's got to be a lot of shorts in crude oil, and that could squeeze it pretty quickly. So I'm looking for a basing above 20, and then when it starts to move, you know, I think it could get 25 relatively quickly. I don't know that doesn't seem like a lot considering where we've come from, right. but, you know, baby steps. Absolutely. you got to, <laughs> what do they say, crawl before you can walk? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Jim, thanks so much. It's good to hear from you, you today. Jim Urio with TJM Institutional Services. Well, the list of retailers shutting their doors and putting their workforce on unpaid leave just keeps climbing. Yesterday it was Macy's. Today it's The Gap, one of the latest to announce a major move by sidelining 80,000 workers. Courtney Reagan is here to take us inside that story. Courtney? Hi, Kelly. So, of course, when the outbreak really started to take hold, we saw many retailers close their stores. They started with two weeks. Now they're saying, look, we're remaining closed for well, who knows when? So while those stores are closed, the workers are getting furloughed, as are many of the corporate workers that support those stores because the majority of sales are still coming from physical locations. So some of the retailers that I've been counting, I've got at least 24 here, Kelly, in the last couple of days furloughing employees. The department stores are names like you mentioned. We've got Macy's, JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, and Kohl's among those that are fur- furloughing workers. Specialty retailers as well. So that's Gap Inc. in its brands, which also includes Old Navy, Banana Republic, and Athleta, Asina Retail Group. You know their names more familiar are Ann Taylor, Loft, Justice, Catherine's. Then we've got Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Free People, Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works as well. Now, many executives and boards, they're also foregoing pay during this period of time, even if those executives, of course, are still working. Some of the CEOs that are taking no compensation during this time include the CEOs of Macy's, Kohl's, Neiman Marcus, and Canada Goose. Now, separately, we also got some new safety protocol announcements from Walmart today because those stores are still open. The retailer says, look, this is changing on a day-to-day basis, but some of our employees have been asking for masks like your earlier segment and gloves. If they want to wear those things, we're trying to make them available for our employees. We're installing plexiglass shields at checkouts. Walmart is considering doing one-way traffic in its aisles so that it can continue with that social distancing. And they're going to begin starting to take the temperature of their employees, first at distribution centers and fulfillment centers, then at stores in the hot spots. They're asking employees to do that for themselves at home every day, too. Also, Walmart says they've hired 50,000 people since March 19th. Kelly, back to you. Wow. And one-way traffic might be a good idea right now. Uh, We'll keep an eye out for it. Courtney, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Up next, runways are filled with parked planes and terminals are virtual ghost towns. New data on the staggering number of folks social distancing from the airport. And check out the airline ETF down close to 60% since the start of the year. No surprise given all that. Trying to rebound today up less than 1% to close out the quarter. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you needed a sign that Americans are starting to take the stay-at-home thing seriously, just look at the eye-popping number of people who are not flying right now. Phil Lebeau is here with that and the impact on these schedules or what remains of them uh, for the airlines. Phil? Kelly, I call this the chart of the day. Take a look at passenger levels over the last two weeks. They have plunged. In fact, it's down so far that as we keep tracking this day to day, we sit there and say, oh, come on, could it really go lower than 200,000? Yeah, it was down to 154,000 people who flew yesterday, were screened by the TSA. Compare yesterday with the same day a year ago. The decline, 94%. 2.3 million people flew on the same day a year ago compared to 154,000 yesterday. Not surprisingly, the airline cuts keep coming. Southwest Airlines now saying that it's going to cut its schedule by 40% for much of the month of May. That's an average of 1,500 flights per weekday that they're pulling out of the system. Spirit Airlines also saying that because of the shelter-in-place order in the New York area, it's going to be stopping flights into New York. Uh, LaGuardia, as well as Newark, as well as Hartford and a couple other airports. The bottom line is this. Nobody's quite sure where the bottom is, but yet when you take a look at the airline stocks, getting a little bit of relief today, moving a little bit higher, in part, Kelly, because people sit there and they say, look, we're not going to see these guys go bankrupt anytime soon. We think there is perhaps a bottom that we're building here. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, Phil, thank you. Uh, Phil LeBeau there. Meanwhile, crude, which should be helping the airlines, it's down uh, dramatically this year. It's up today about 2 percent, but it's still on pace for its worst quarter ever. And according to AAA, the average price of a gallon of gasoline is now below $2 nationwide. And my next guest sees it plummeting more in the next two weeks. Let's bring in Andy Lipow. He's president of Lipow Oil Associates. Andy, what can you tell us? How, how low is it going to go? Well, I see that gasoline prices are going to drop at least another 20 cents a gallon over the next couple of weeks, and they could go down another 10 cents a gallon after that, given the significant decline in gasoline futures, which are off nearly 67 percent since early January. Wow. Um, the, of course, irony now is anytime that happens, it's because the economy's poor, people aren't driving uh, and so forth. So there's not much you can really take advantage of, is there? No, there isn't. And by my numbers, gasoline demand in the U.S. is already off nearly 40 percent. It's even worse out on the West Coast, where it's down 50 percent with all these shelter in place orders coming from the variety of states. 50 percent drop. I mean, how is the how is it not down more? You have crude below 20 dollars a barrel. I mean, can you break down the, the average gasoline price nationally now to say, hey, this is how much it's, is basically fees and taxes and surcharges. And this is how much is really from the price of crude. Right. Well, you know, if you look at uh, the futures price of gasoline, that's always a good starting point. That's about 60 cents. If you look at what all the, the taxes and the fees are, uh, you're, you're looking at probably another 50 to 80 cents a gallon, depending on what state you are in. The local retailer on the street is the one who's uh, recovering a lot of the margin these days, because you'll notice that gasoline prices nationally are only coming off about two cents a gallon per day, right. while the price of futures has actually crashed. Yeah, no, I, I have to fill up on my way home. So I was, I was paying attention to that exactly this morning. Um, you know, so how much, I, I know you focus on this more from, at the gasoline pump, but can you quantify the, the damage this is doing to the U.S. economy? And again, it's a strange discussion to be having when we should be pleased that a major, you know, cost is down so much. But, you know, how much is it hurting uh, now the U.S. being such a major oil producing country? Well, it's certainly a significant hit in states like Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Colorado, and Alaska, which are the big oil producers. 
And you're seeing the capital expense budgets of not only the major oil companies, but all the producers have been cut by 30 to 50 percent. And of course, where the layoffs are occurring is in those service industries that you've got like Halliburton and Schlumberger. And of course, the small producers now they're pleading with the Texas Railroad Commission to implement production caps, which we haven't seen since the 1990s. Production caps, in other words, saying, you know, you can, it's quotas. It's basically, you know, it's a version of what OPEC does. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, you know, OPEC has invited Texas to attend their next meeting because, you know, Texas would like to see oil prices rise. But the fact of the matter is, is that the demand destruction that we're seeing worldwide is so great that there's not enough time for OPEC and non-OPEC producers to, uh, to react to it. And as a result, we're filling up inventory everywhere we can place a barrel of crude and refined products. Do you think, we, we just spoke about this with Jim Urio as well, but, you know, the president spoke with Vladimir Putin yesterday about the, the collapse in the oil price. Do you think he would do something like lift some sanctions on Russia, maybe in exchange they, you know, kind of take their foot off the gas when it comes to oil production and, and that's a way out of this or no? Well, I think that's part of the way out of it. I think the Russians would be looking for a deal on sanction relief. But in the meantime, if you put this in context, oil demand is down at least 15 million barrels a day here in, uh, in March. In April, there are estimates it's going to be down 30 million barrels a day. At the same time, wow. Russia and Saudi Arabia are increasing their exports by 3 million barrels a day. The gap is simply too wide for yeah. even a, a small agreement to handle. So as a result, as we fill up all of these nooks and crannies onshore and take tankers for floating storage, we might actually see OPEC is forced to cut production because there's simply nowhere to go. Wow. Andy, is informative as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. Andy Lipow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.